All right, Exodus 20 and verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. All right, this is the third message on the third commandment, and there will be at least one more. And we are currently at uh, the, the sixth uh, prohibition. We were looking at what the third commandment forbids. And what we have said so far is that it prohibits blasphemy and irreverent, empty, insincere, unorthodox, or manipulative uses of God's name. Uh, so that was the sixth. By manipulative, we saw that it, it forbids magic. Uh, there there um, probably is the initial application of this command was to invoking the name of God as though the name itself, the sound of the name, was a kind of magic through which the powers would be released and, and uh, what one desired would be accomplished, uh, kind of naming magic. And then um, the manipulating, not just of God, but of others through false oaths. Uh, the, what the Bible requires is that we honor God's name. His name is a majestic name, in Psalm 8.1. There is a glory due his name, Psalm 29.1, and others. Uh, Jesus has the name that is above every name, then that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confort, confess. And so. Uh, his name is to only ever to be res uh, expressed reverently and honorably and respectfully. So the, the sixth of these prohibitions, the manipulative views, introduce the subject of oaths and the question, should Christians allow themselves to be placed under oaths? Uh, there were Anabaptist groups as well as Jehovah Witnesses today uh, who say that we should not, and they base that on uh, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. There were Jehovah Witnesses in my elementary school who would not stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag because uh, they believe that Jesus was prohibiting that in Matthew 5, 33 uh, to 37. Uh, so to answer the question about whether or not Christians should take oaths, we need to, there are several um, prior questions that need to be answered. One, what is an oath? And then the question, should, should Christians allow themselves to be placed under oath? The short answer to the question is, yes, they should. That there are matters of weight and moment, occasions that are of a serious nature, an official nature. Um, they shouldn't take an oath flippantly or, or uh, in, in trivial circumstances. But there are circumstances when, in which we allow ourselves to be placed under oath. So that's the short answer, but uh, we want to get more deeply into it in order uh, to, 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 to examine the whole issue carefully. So let's start with definitions. What is an oath? An oath is an appeal to God to witness what we say, uh, what we promise, and implied in that is to punish us if we fail to tell the truth. Uh, so it's a religious affirmation in that it, it assumes that God is omniscient and God is omnipresent. There are two kinds of oaths that uh, the theologians identify. One is a declarative or a, a, a affirma, a, affirmatory, uh, an affirmation 
where we call upon God to witness the truth of, we, of what we affirm or deny, like when you step into a courtroom and you pledge to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. That's, uh, that's a declarative oath. And then there's promissory oaths where you call upon God to witness the sincerity or certainty of a, prom of, of, of a, of a promise or act which we purpose to perform. We make a promise, we call upon God to witness it, and uh, this uh, solidifies, it underscores uh, the certainty that we will perform uh, what we promise. So again, this, this is, uh, oaths are inherently religious. They imply the attributes of omniscience and omnipresence and God's justice and his power and our accountability to him. So two kinds of oaths, declarative promissory oaths. Uh, the second question, uh, then should Christians, uh, should Christians allow themselves to be placed under an oath? The answer that I've given so far is yes, but then I want to look further Consider this Roman numeral number two. Number one is definitions. Number two is, are there limitations? Uh, are, are we prohibited from all oaths or just some oaths? So in order to answer that question, we need to look at uh, Jesus' teaching. So if you turn to Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37, Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Uh, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what Jesus is addressing there is the evasive use of oaths where there's an, an attempt to get all the weight and certainty that comes from an oath while avoiding using the name of God. And because you avoid using the name of God, you're not really obligated to do what you've promised. So you don't swear by God's name, you swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head. And what Jesus is saying is God is everywhere present. And when you swear by heaven, well, you know, that's the throne of God. You're not evading God. You're not evading the necessity of keeping the promise that you've made or fulfilling the oath that, that you've been placed under. The earth, that's his footstool. Jerusalem, that's his city. Uh, it's not even your own head because uh, you can't uh, keep that head placed on your shoulders. Um, that's not what he says, but he says you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, that head, in a sense, is God's. He gave that to you and he preserves it. And uh, the, the, the basic requirement of a believer is that ordinarily an oath should not be necessary because your yes is yes and your no is no. You, you have credibility so that you don't need to, to add extra emphasis to, um, to, what you, uh, to what you are promising or what you are affirming to be true because you have established a reputation for honesty and ordinarily all that is necessary is for you to say yes or, or no. All right, then turn to Matthew 23. Uh, this is the second major treatment of the issue, verse 16. This is in Jesus' uh, denouncing of the Pharisees. He says, 
Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anybody swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You see, it's, it's the same basic lesson. It's an evasive use of oath. You use the oath to get all of the, the, the certainty and emphasis and dignity that goes with the oath. But then you've, uh, you, you're manipulating others because you're promising, uh, you're saying that, that this is qualified. Um, uh, you, 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 are, you, are, uh, you are trying to establish a reputation for honesty by using the oath, but in fact, you are manipulating the oath by claiming that when you swear by the temple and not the gold of the temple, that you're not obligated to keep the promise. So when we were children in the community I grew up in, we would make a promise and then we would say, well, I don't have to do that. Well, you promised. You would say, yeah, but I have my fingers crossed. So that cancels out the promise. What is that? That's a, a, a manipulative use of an oath. You make a promise, but you have these conditions. And the conditions are you, uh, you, you, you had your fingers crossed. And so that means you don't really have to do it. This is essentially what, what was, is what was going on with the Pharisees. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. I swear by the altar that such and such is true, or that I will perform such and such an obligation or duty. Um, but... Uh, but uh, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by the oath. You blind men, Jesus says, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So all oaths and promises, here's the point, involve God. They are made in the presence of God, and therefore all promises, all oaths, all vows must be honored. Because whatever you swear by God is there. He is a witness of what you are saying. And so it puts you under obligation because he has witnesses. Whether or not we say at the end of the oath, so help you God, or put your hand on the Bible, he is there, he is present. You are obligated to keep your promise. So when he says, take, do not take an oath, in the older versions, make no oath at all. What he's saying is we're not to have trivial oaths. It's only for weighty matters. Why? Because ordinarily it's our yes is yes and our no is no. We only have to go beyond yes and no because we have ruined our reputation for honesty. And so that's why we end up saying, no, no, uh, I, I swear. I swear I'm going to do it. I promise. Really, I will. I, I guarantee that we have to add all this extra verbiage whether we are making a promise or affirming that something is true or not true. No, I mean it. Honestly, all that is unnecessary is what Jesus says. If we're honest people, we don't have to say any of that. The only reason why we need to say that is that we've taught people not to believe us. 
because we haven't been faithful in the past. So what Jesus is doing is not forbidding all oaths. He is limiting us to occasions that are weighty and significant and important, not on ordinary occasions where it should be sufficient if we have a track record of honesty uh, for others to believe what it is that we are saying. So that brings us to Roman numeral number three. There are legitimate oaths. And what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and in his denunciation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23 fits with the rest of the Bible. So let me say a couple of things about that. A universal prohibition of oaths would be inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. The Old Testament sanctions and commands the use of oaths. God is represented as having sworn. He swears by his own name, Hebrews chapter 6, when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So God himself swears to underscore the certainty and the veracity and the reliability of what he says. He does that for our sake regarding the covenant promise, a matter of great weight and importance. The sacraments are mutual oaths confirming a covenant that was behind uh, the church father Tertullian's uh, uh, translation into Latin or the use of the Latin term sacramentum for, um, for, for the sacraments. A sacramentum was the oath taken by Roman soldiers and his pledge to the emperor. And uh, so Tertullian, I think with uh, insight into the nature of the covenant, uh, used that term uh, to describe what is taking place in the administration of the sacraments. Pledges are being ex exchanged. At the Lord's Supper, for example, God is pledging to us the benefit of the shed blood and broken body of Christ. And we, in turn, are pledging to him um, uh, our faithfulness, our fidelity, our obedience and, and, and service. So sacraments are some of the, the right of admission into, into, the, in, in, into the fellowship of the church is, is the baptismal font. Uh, the ongoing meal is the Lord's Supper. These are oaths. They are sacramentums, uh, to, 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 to put it in that language. And then the new, the, in the New Testament, the apostles regularly appeal to God as their witness. Uh, Eleven times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul or one of the others says, with God as my witness. That's a, that's a form of a pledge. That's a form of an oath. It's calling upon God to witness to the veracity or truthfulness of what the Apostle Paul is writing and saying. He would hardly be doing that if Jesus were prohibiting the use of all oaths. And then Jesus consented to an oath. In Matthew 26, when the high priest placed him under oath, Matthew 26, uh, 63 through 64. So this, uh, the legitimacy of oaths is uh, consistent as well, in our understanding of what Jesus is teaching with the, um, with the rest of the scripture, and then it's consistent with the rest of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount where we, where we find the, 
the original um, pronouncement of Jesus regarding oaths. Matthew 5.18, Jesus says he didn't come to overthrow the law, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so when it comes to oath, he's not abolishing, he's not abolishing the third commandment. He's fulfilling the third commandment. He, he's giving the third commandment its right interpretation, its proper use, which is not uh, in, in ordinary speech and in ordinary circumstances, in ordinary relationships. Oaths are to be used only in, in, in uh, matters of great moment. So for Christians, can we be placed under oaths? And the answer is yes, in the courtroom. When we get married, we exchange vows, right? When we take a public office, when we enter military service, when we join a church, we have vows, we pledge, we are placed under an oath. And uh, when we become officers of the church, likewise. So yes, uh, we may legitimately and rightly and properly uh, be placed under oaths as believers. Well, that uh, moves to point number four, are there invalid oaths? Uh, oaths that if they are taken should not be honored. In other words, does the universal rule that all of our promises are to be kept, does that apply to absolutely everything? And uh, the answer is no, it doesn't apply to absolutely everything. There are exceptions. Like what? Well, like if a thing is forbidden or if it's reckless and endangers yourself or others, or if it is impossible to do. So again, when we were kids, it was one thing if you were to dare another kid uh, to say, jump off of the roof and into the swimming pool. It was another thing to be double-dared. I mean, if you were double-dared, I mean, then your reputation was at stake. You had to go through with the thing that was double-dared. You kids didn't grow up in this world. That's the world I grew up in. It was one thing to be dared, but if you were double dared and you backed down, it means you were a chicken. It means you were a coward. It means uh, you were a sissy. So if you were double dared, then you had, to, you had to go up on the roof and jump off and jump into the swimming pool. Put yourself at risk. Do a reckless thing because you were double, you were double dared to do it. Um, in effect, being placed under an oath by someone else requiring you to do a certain thing. So larger catechism question number 13 says, a promise is not to be honored if it is of things unlawful. For example, things forbidden. You, if you have promised, if you have uh, sworn that you will do a thing that is sinful, you're not to honor the promise. You're, not, you're to break the oath. If you promise to do something that is uh, monastic, um, for example, a vow of obedience to the, the, um, the, the, the abbot, the head of the monastery. Um, no, or, or vows of chastity when you don't have the, the gift of celibacy, which was and continues to be a major problem in the monastic orders. It always has been. You know, there's, there's records right before the time of the Reformation of this extraordinary number of children being born to nuns, fathered by monks. And then right into the present, so, you know, it's been all over the news in recent years of the, the, uh, the 
sexual abuse that, that's gone on in the priesthood because there's so many men who, who have gone into the priesthood who do not have the gift of celibacy, but they have sworn to be celibate, sworn to do that which they are not gifted and qualified to do. There, are, there is a gift of celibacy. I think that's the right way to understand uh, Jesus in, in Matthew 19 when he says that, uh, you know, the, the permanence of marriage uh, to remain married to the person that you married is not for everyone. Um, and being unmarried, uh, he says, is, it's, to, it's for those to whom it is given. There, there are those who are given the gift of singleness, given the gift of celibacy. But the implication is that's relatively rare. And for ordinary people to unnecessarily vow celibacy or delay marriage um, is, is unwise and often has disastrous consequences. So you're not to vow to do what's impossible, and you're not to vow to do what is reckless and, and, and puts other people in danger. So we have some biblical examples of this. We have, for example, Jephthah, who offered to, uh, who promised to offer as a burnt offering whatever came out of the front door of his dwelling. Man, what did he expect to come out of the front door of his dwelling? His daughter comes out, and he promised to offer her as a burnt offering. A Saul vowing to kill anyone who paused to eat. 1 Samuel 14, in the midst of a battle. Who paused to eat? Jonathan. And he scooped up some honey. So he... he Saul should not, did not, in fact, indeed, in the end, should not have made such a vow. We would say that's an illegitimate vow. That's an illegal vow or illegal oath or promise. Should not have made it. Having made it, he shouldn't honor it. A Saul, uh, David rather, vowed to kill Nabal, the husband of Abigail, and didn't follow through on that vow. And he was right not to follow through on it because he had no grounds for murdering Nabal just because he was being stingy or greedy with uh, the, the goods that he had. Herod vowed to give Herodias up to half of his kingdom. Uh, he was so enchanted by uh, her, her dance. And uh, she asked for the head of John the Baptist. Should he have honored that uh, vow? No, he should not. That was a thing that was immoral. It was a thing that was that was wrong, that was evil. Um, 40, the 40 men of Acts 23, 12, who vowed not to eat or drink, uh, not to eat or drink uh, until they had killed the apostle Paul. Again, they, they were promising to do that which is evil. The Westminster Confession says we cannot oblige ourselves to do what is sinful. Uh, some of the other older commentators, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Puritan Ridgely, as we sin in making the promise, so we sin in fulfilling it. You shouldn't make a promise to do evil. You, you're, you're sinning and you make, when you make the promise to do evil, and then if you follow through on it and actually do it, then you're, 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 you're sinning a second time. Um, never are we to... Make the name of God subservient to God's dishonor, says Thomas Boston, one of these post-Reformation Scottish, Scottish uh, pastors and, and theologians. 
the Swiss theologian Francis Turretin says, an oath ought not to be a bond of iniquity, whereby we are promising uh, to do that which is sinful and wrong, which God condemns and, and, and God uh, dis, uh, is displeased with and, and does not approve of. All right, that leads then to our fifth and final point, uh, the necessity of oaths. Why are oaths necessary? Uh, so why is it that Jesus doesn't remove the obligation or even insist that we not allow ourselves to be taken under oaths, uh, oath at all? Uh, so why, why are they necessary? Why does, why does God make an oath? Why, um, why do the apostles invoke uh, oaths? Uh, placing themselves under uh, oath. And, and wh why all that that we have seen? Why are they necessary? Why, in other words, why are the Anabaptists and the Jehovah Witnesses wrong when they interpret Jesus to prohibit all oaths? Well, I think the basic thing about their position on this is I think that they underestimate human depravity. Oaths are necessary because people are dishonest and they are unreliable. And so you place them under oath, under oath in order to make more certain that what they say or what they promise will be fulfilled. Then otherwise they would not. And then there are sanctions. So there are divine sanctions and where people believe in God and where they're placing their hand on the Bible with, and, 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 and forced to say, as with God as my witness and so forth, there's the implication of divine sanctions. And then in our own courts, there are legal sanctions for lying under oath. So you place a person under oath to more perfectly ensure that they're going to tell the truth. Why do you have to do that? Because people are unreliable, because people lie, because they're dishonest, because they're self-serving. Because if they can get away with it, they will misrepresent what was promised or what was affirmed when they were placed under oath or when they signed the contract or, or, or whatever else may, may, may be at, at issue. So that, that's why would God place himself under oath? Because people are slow to believe God and we are slow to believe others. And so we underscore the certainty of what we promise or what we affirm so that, so, so that, um, so that we will be believed. So, so God places himself under oath, uh, not because he's ever dishonest or not because he ever misrepresented, but because you are slow to believe him. And so that you will believe his promises, he puts himself under oath, swearing by none higher because there is no one higher by whom he might swear, so as to make sure that you understand that what he has promised will certainly take place. It will be fulfilled. It will occur. When you stand before God, you will find that your sins have been forgiven. You will find that you have this status of one who has been reconciled. Uh, you, you have the gift of eternal life. You will not be condemned. Uh, God has made a promise. He is reliable. And because we're just so slow to believe what he's promised, he's underscored it. He's put an underline uh, beneath it so that we know it's certain that the promise is going to be fulfilled. And the reason why we put our officers uh, under oath, because we want to remind them of what they have promised, because, you know, we will tend to forget. We will tend to neglect 
Ministers, when they are ordained, are placed under oath. They make promises. They have these vows that they take. Why? To underscore the importance. It's a matter of weight. Weight and moment is uh, the language of the Westminster Confession. Matters of weight and moment. You're ordaining a minister. You're ordaining officers. You, they are pledging to do certain things. There's the accountability that goes with that. There, there's the occasion to remind them of what, what they have promised. And because human nature is what it is, we need that kind of accountability that comes through the taking of oaths. Uh, when you get married, we'll go back to what we, were, what we were reminding us of earlier. You get married, you take an oath. Will you, right? Will you, do you pledge and so forth, have this woman to be your married wife? And do you promise and covenant? You're taking an oath. We can hold you accountable to that. For better, for worse, sickness and in health and so forth, we put you under an oath. Uh, why do we do that? Because it's a matter of great weight and moment. You, ordain, you go into the military. Is that a significant step? A matter of weight and moment where you're making promises to pledge, uh, they're pledging to defend the nation and defend the Constitution and, 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 and so forth? Yes. So all oaths are not prohibited. The little elementary school classmates uh, who were Jehovah Witnesses who would not pledge allegiance were wrong. The Jehovah Witnesses have got that wrong. Those Anabaptist uh, sectarian groups, they were wrong. So we, we, we allow ourselves uh, to be placed under oath and then we keep the promises that we have made so as not to violate the third commandment. And by dishonoring uh, you, vainly or, or using the name of God in an, in an empty or, or vain or mean, meaningless sense. Uh, all right, there's a couple of other points here dealing with games of chance, rolling the dice, that sort of thing. The older authors did not like games of chance. You're toying with providence. You roll that dice, it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap. Okay, I'm not going to talk about that. All right, I'm just telling you that's what the older authors thought. If you want to know more about that, you're going to have to read the booklet that comes out that has uh, what they have to say about it and what the rebuttal is. All right, um, then also attaching God's name to signs and omens without authorization, fleecing God. I've got some stuff about that too. Um, but we're out of time and we're all hungry and uh, so we want to go to dinner. So stay tuned. You can get the written copy and you can read up on those things and uh, satisfy your curiosity about all of that. In the meantime, let's be a people who keep our promises. What we promise, we will do. We promise only that which, you know, which God permits us to promise. And uh, we, what we affirm always is what is true uh, as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would be a people of integrity always keeping our vows, never vowing what is unlawful or impermissible or reckless, uh, honoring your name by being a people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.